All right, go ahead and grab those blue pew Bibles that are in your pew. I want you to turn to page 445, and we're going to read Job 40, verses 1 through 14. If you're fast at doing that, you can put your finger at page 611, because I'm also going to read Isaiah 50, 10 and 11. The first reading is from the book of Job, chapter 40, verses 1 through 14. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. And then again on page 611. Our Advent reading today, the fear of the Lord, Isaiah 50, 10 and 11. But who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Please join me as we pray. Father, we watch Libby up here, and we see the sign of the covenant being given to her, and we wonder how many times she is going to fall prey to her brothers, and we just are overwhelmed with the way that you protect us. We're overwhelmed with how you care. Father, I'm reminded of looking at Libby of how many times in Job 38 and 39 you talked about your attentiveness to your creation, how you, Father, watched as the wild deer and goats gave birth, and you awaited and counted the days down until that birth, you longed for them and you cared for them. And Father, I am amazed how much more you care for us. Father, we come before you, and we would be blind beyond measure if we didn't think that peace was something that we ought to pray for as we come before you in this Advent season. Father, 
I have not known a time as polarized as it feels right now. Father, as we have heard again of the continuation of COVID, Father, as our country is reeling over uh, injustice, Father, as we are threatened by the way we care for one another, whether it's across political bounds or racial bounds or even across the bounds of male and female. Father, we come before you and we need peace. Father, we pray and we pray for one another. Father, I especially pray for those who need to know your peace that passes understanding. Father, who are suffering greatly today, I pray that what they would experience even though we're not reading it today, is the seven days long of sitting with one another in silence before you, of praying for one another. Father, we plead for our country. We plead that this would be a season where abortion is ended. Father, we plead that this would be a season where the church stands up and cares for pregnant women and cares for the unborn from before they are born through the death of that child as an old person. We we pray that you would make us as passionate toward caring for these mothers and these babies when they are born as we are passionate that you would end abortion in our country. Father, would we do it sacrificially? Father, would you allow us to see the unrest that is in our, cult- our culture because of racial tension? Father, would we be so fast to repent anywhere that we can? Father, would you teach us what it means to think the best of each other? Father, would you teach us to see each other? Father, would you give us the ability to see those who are hurting and in pain? Father, would it be something that costs us? Something that that has the measure of value that you place on every human being and their dignity as you did in this Advent season. Father, we pray that as we turn to look at your word, we would remember that you have sent Jesus the Prince of Peace. And Lord Jesus, that right now, you are at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. Would you remind us of that? And Father, especially those women and men who are convinced that no one else sees them and who suffer under the weight of oppression and injustice. Father, we have confessed our sin. And I praise you for the way that Aaron reminded us that we are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus once and for all. But Father, you have said that your word is God-breathed and it is able to correct us. And we pray that we, the church, would be corrected by your word. 
And most importantly, that we would be corrected by our understanding of who you are. That we would not define you the way we want to define you. But Father, that we would listen. That we would take that first step as your children and hear you with the ears that you gave us. Because you are a God who hears your people when they cry to you. That we would be women and men who hear you. And so, Father, I now pray, would you help us hear you? Would we hear you? And, Father, would we, us, not outside the church, but in the church, would we be the ones who are changed by the hearing of your word? And would we go out and give our lives away? as a spiritual act of worship to you, Father, for your glory, that your name would be made great and that women and men across the world would praise you. Father, it's what we long for. Give us the passion that you have for a broken and a needy world. And Father, please, don't let it just be in our words but would our lives be marked by that? Father, with boldness, I ask you that you would give me the freedom to communicate a modicum of what you have taught me this week. Would you be glorified as we look at your word? And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray all these things. Amen. All right, you know that we've been asking you to look at the book of Job through the lens of the fear of the Lord. You know that we've been in an all semester, and I did not know if we were going to be able to bring it through this section of Advent. I can tell you that I'm super excited that we have, and I want you to hear it today. The lens of Advent, even through the fear of the Lord. That's why I read to you the passage that I read to you out of Isaiah 50. And you can turn back to it if you want to, page 611 in your Blue Pew Bibles, verses 10 and 11. The main focus of wisdom literature, of which Job is a part, is simply asking the question, who is God? That's why wisdom literature has been given to us. What we celebrate at Advent, these candles that are lit, is that God showed up. And what we're celebrating today, as we see God speaking to Job, is just that, that God shows up. In this section of Job, in verses in chapters 38 through 41, God shows up, doesn't he? Did you know that it's the longest conversation that anyone has with God in the Bible? Right here, Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. Four chapters. And you can almost count on your hands and your feet, and maybe you'd have to multiply it by two. All the words that Job speaks during all four of those chapters. The longest conversation that we have of God in all of Scripture right here. Now look, I know that all of Scripture is, what is it, catechisms, communicants class? All Scripture is breathed out by God, right? All Scripture is that way. But the reason that we need it to be that way is because we're constantly forgetting who God is. And passages, just like this one in Job 38 through 41, but also something like Exodus 34, 6 and 7, where we are reminded who God is, his self-declaration. These are weighty passages. 
And I would encourage you, during the, during the season of Advent, spend time reading Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. It'll blow you away how much you're fed. It will blow your mind what you will see. This Advent season is a season of darkness, right? It might be the only time of the year that I'm really glad that it gets dark early outside of our church. Otherwise, it's often a challenge for us as preachers to preach when it's already dark outside and it's 4.45, close to 5 o'clock. I get it. I understand. But this is a season where it's great for us to remember that God shows up. That's why we celebrate Advent, the season of darkness where God comes and he sends the light into the world, Jesus Christ. And we wait as this second advent, this, this coming of Jesus again to make everything right. The brokenness and the suffering in the sin that affects our lives day in and day out. And what does the fear of the Lord look like in this context? I want to ask you a question in the very beginning. Through what lens are you viewing and interacting with the world right now? Through what lens? How are you interacting with the world right now? To say it like Isaiah might say it, what torches have you lit to make sense of what's going on in our world? In these chapters of Job, God shows up. Job is silenced. What does Job learn from God? I'm going to give you a sentence that Nathan started last week, I continue next week, and Nathan will end it, or I continue this week, and Nathan will end it next week. I am your creator, God says to Job, and I love you. And today we're going to hear that he says, and your Savior who saves you, will you trust me? That question, will you trust me, is implicit to this section of Job. Because God, as you know, does not give Job a reason why Job suffers. The caveat that you need to hear is that if you are in the midst of suffering and you need to be still, remember that at the beginning of Job's suffering too, even his friends who were miserable comforters sat with him in silence. And I want you to know, this body wants to sit with you in silence. But our text extends beyond that. And there are two aspects of it that you need to see tonight, both the context and the content of what Job hears from God and that we ought to contemplate it as we too walk in darkness. So what is the context, this larger picture of God's self-declaration in these chapters. I am your creator and I love you and I am your savior who saves you. Will you trust in me? I want you to pull back a little bit. I want you to remember the circle that we're in the midst of as you hear God speaking to Job as he does in these 14 verses of chapter 40. We have heard God speak already. In chapters 38 and 39. Go back and listen to Nate's sermon if you want to. But Nate defined in that that God is our creator who loves us. He has heard Job and Job's cries to him. How do you know this? 
Because in, verse, in chapters 38 and 39, God references the things that Job referenced. Go back and listen to the cries of Job that start in chapter 3 and are replete through the next 26 chapters. Job references things like the constellations. And what does God reference in 38 and 39? Things like the constellations. Job references God's sovereignty and God shows Job his sovereignty. Job references God's transcendent power. But as Nathan pointed out last week, Job doesn't question his power. He questions God's goodness. He questions God's love. And that's where God meets Job. We've told you that we've been reading this commentary by this biblical scholar named Eleanor Stump, and she has been phenomenal in pointing out minutia to us. And one of the things that she points out is she points out in this conversation with Job, it is an I and a you conversation. It is not a description about a third-person God, but it is an I and a you conversation. And in the midst of that conversation, Joe, God points out his I and you conversation with all of creation, his personal relationship with it all. From a paternal point of view, from a maternal point of view, he even describes himself as having a womb that gave birth to the sea and in his compassion wraps the sea in swaddling clothes and puts it in a crib and speaks to it, thou. It is amazing God's provision in chapters 38 and 39. His provision for the ravens when they cry, not just cry aloud, but cry to him. That the lightning speaks back to God and says, here we are. God's attentiveness to his creation. And the idea of all of this is for Job to understand as a man, if I care so much about my creation, God says, how much more do I care about you, Job? How much more valuable are you? Does that sound familiar? Those of you who know the New Testament, does it sound familiar? Who else uses that language? If a sparrow falls from the sky and God knows it, don't you think he knows what you need? You are worth so much more than a sparrow. The God who knows the numbers of hairs on your head knows your very need. Jesus says, how much more valuable are you? This is a beautiful picture. The drawing conclusion from those chapters is that it should be even more obvious and convincing that God loves Job. A love that seeks his good and in so doing unites Job with himself. That's an amazing love, isn't it? But the next circle out is that God is meeting with Job at all. Do you remember in chapter 38 it starts off just like this chapter 40? And the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind and said, Gird up your loins like a man and contend with me. He says the same thing. God has met Job and he's given Job his desire. What do we learn? It's like God to show up. We see it here at Advent. And in our lives where we struggle with darkness and suffering and sin... Do we remember that it's like God to show up? Because that's what we're learning here. God isn't going to allow himself to be falsely defined. 
The friends speak ill of God, don't they? Read in chapter 42. And, and what God does, is he said, I'm not going to be misunderstood. And so God shows up to define himself. He is not required to show up. He mercifully shows up. And there's yet another circle of this that blows the mind of the reader. And again, Eleanor Stump is the one who has helped so much with this. This picture of God with Job is encased by a conversation of God with Satan that Job knows nothing about. But that you and I as readers can't get away from. The question that God asks Satan in his presence, where have you been? A question of probing that reveals the very nature of Satan himself. Not in your presence, essentially, the answer comes from chapter 1. And then the second question that seems completely unrelated, have you considered my, sub, my, my servant Job? Why would that be cutting to Satan? Because Satan knows he wants nothing to do with God, and God points out a man who wants everything to do with him. It exposes us to the reality of who God is, that God interacts with all of his creation in love. God exposes even the alienation of Satan. But it's an incredible gift for us as readers because it exposes our propensity to side with Satan and to doubt the goodness of God, right? We see that as readers, right? We're drawn into it as well. You know that when we suffer, we're totally there. But here, we see ourselves drawn in. We begin to wonder, is God for us? Does God love us? Is God good? God in his kindness addresses our doubt, even in the midst of challenging our faith. The content of this self-declaration. I am the creator who loves you, and this week I am your savior who saves you. Will you trust in me? Listen, there's no doubt as you read this that it's right to understand that there's a tone of indignation here. A tone of indignation that is most likely of a confident lover who is able to be indignant at the accusation of the lack of love, at the lack of goodness. Commentators have suggested that if this is a false lover, maybe a better idea of responding to Joe would be, no, 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 honestly, I love you. Or a weak lover might be, please, would you believe that I just love you? But here we see this tone of indignation, this confident, true lover, the attention that God shows to Job is analogous to the attention that he shows to his creation. He answers Job and says in verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. Where does he get that idea? Job is the one who said it. In chapter 13 and in chapter 23, Job says this, I want to speak with the Almighty. I desire to argue my case with him, he says in chapter 13. 
In chapter 23, Job actually says, I would fill my mouth with arguments and go to God. God pays attention to Job. And not only that, God addresses Job not like any of his creation, but he addresses Job as specifically a human. Verse 7 says, dress for action like a man. Job is uniquely oriented to God as you and I, women and men, created in his image, are equally oriented to God uniquely, apart from all of the rest of his creation. God says to Job, I created you to deal with me face to face. With moral reasoning. That's who we are as human beings. And how God pays attention to Job is incredible in these verses. But he asked Job a hard question in 9 through 14. He says, Job, can you save yourself? Is what he asks. Job, can you save yourself? Look, this is where I get that. God says to Job in seven, dress yourself for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. And then he says in verse eight, will you even put me in the wrong? Job has said, look, I'm being treated unjustly. God says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then he says this in nine, have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? He talks in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13 of how Job, clothe yourself in majesty, Job, and bring judgment on the proud and the wicked. And then he says in verse 14, then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God asked Job a question in these verses Can you save yourself? It's implied in Job's arguments. Job says, I just need an interview with God and then everything will be made right, is what Job says. If I can get with God, I'll explain to God why he's wronged me and everything will be made right. Let let me set it straight with him, Job pleads. Let me speak the truth to God, Job pleads. What is Job known for, you all? We know he's known for one thing. Okay, so beside being an excellent human being, a righteous man, we know his action is one of intercession for others, don't we? For his children, and then at the end of this chapter, even for his friends. But God says in verses 9 and following, show me your strength. He says in verses 11 through 13, exact right judgment, Job. Go ahead, do it. Exact right judgment. And then in verse 14, he says, when you do that, then I'll recognize that your right arm has the power to save. God asks Job, can you save yourself? And then do you want to know what God does? God spends the next chapter and a half talking about two creatures, the greatest of all land creatures, behemoth, and the greatest of all sea creatures, Leviathan. And Job goes on, or God goes on to explain to Job, 
I have total control over all these creatures. In fact, in chapter 41, he says, Who is he who can stand before me, God says? Whatever is under heaven is mine. God is pointing out to Job in these few verses that he is powerful over everything and that he can save. God is saying to Job, I am your savior. This picture of the right hand of the Lord is replete throughout the Old Testament. But one of my favorite passages was already referenced in our confession of sin, Isaiah 59, where God asks in that verse, in the very beginning of it, he looks and he sees the brokenness and the evil and the oppression. And he says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. And then in verse 15, it says, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation. God's own arm. His own son became a human being and brought salvation. Jesus Christ, the right arm of the Father, God of God, very God of very God, light of light, became man and brought salvation. He is our Redeemer. So what do we contemplate with this self-declaration that God gives Job implicitly? I am your creator and I love you. I am your Savior who saves you. Will you trust me? The question that we ask each other in this Advent season is what does the awe-filled orientation toward God mean to us, us, as we walk in darkness, suffering, brokenness of the world, being sinned against and sinning against. Advent, waiting for Jesus' second coming. That Advent passage from Isaiah 50, verse 10, simply says this, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? It introduces two options while walking in darkness. We either trust the name of the Lord, and again, Exodus 34 is a great place to understand the name of the Lord. We rely on our God, or we kindle the fires and light our own torches. In the context of Isaiah 50, those torches are torches of bringing salvation to oneself. People of Israel making deals with Egypt, making deals all around that they can, trying to protect themselves. Our torches, our actions toward wisdom, our solutions to our suffering and to escaping darkness that do not lead us through Jesus first. What are those in our lives? What are those torches that we light? They're often the politics that we cling to, the intellect that we say is ours the redefining of God in, in the image that we want him to be in, the denial of or the escaping even of the broken reality that's around us. There are two outcomes that are offered here. The outcome of peace, 
trusting in God and relying on him or the outcome of torment. We know the outcome of torment, don't we? The outcome of torment that spans the spectrum from simple complaining to that paralyzing fear and anger to the brokenness around us. Isaiah 50, 10 and 11 says that those who demand the light of their own torches will lie down in torment, will be paralyzed, no longer walking, no longer living, but with paralysis. So there's an invitation here as there is to Job, as Job listens to God. The invitation for us as we fear the Lord, as we learn who he is, that God is the creator who loves us and the savior who saves us, will we trust in him, is to snuff out our own torches. Listen, at the fear of, of getting you to identify Jesus with that, that guy who, who leads Survivor and is the one who is always snuffing out somebody's torch, I want you to see that that's the picture that's offered here. Is that you would bring your torches up here and say, Jesus, snuff that out. I refuse to live by my own light. I want to bask in the light of the gospel instead. The light of the gospel in Jesus, the light of the world. Not stand here with my own torch of pride and wickedness, my own torch of this is how you would solve the brokenness of the world that doesn't first lead through Jesus. That like Job, we would be silenced. We would be led to repentance. Tim Keller writes in an article, as we repent, let's consider the free grace of Jesus. The free grace of the salvation of Christ until there is no coldness or unkindness in us. Who wants to raise their hand about coldness and unkindness being in us? Have mercy. Think of the sacrificial love of Christ for you. No impatience. Are you covered up with impatience? Think of God's patience with you. And no indifference left in us. Consider free grace until your life shows the warmth and the affection of God. God was infinitely patient and attentive to me out of grace. And it's not just the invitation to snuff out our torches, but it's also the invitation to intercession. It's an amazing reality of what happens to the people in the Bible who meet God face to face. You see it in Job, right? Job says in verse 40, he says right there that I fall on my face, I cover my hand with my, my mouth with my hand, and I don't say anything else, right? That's what he says in 40. And you're about to hear him say it again at the beginning of 42. But what's amazing is that that's not the only place in Scripture where that happens. Daniel does the same thing. Daniel is in the presence of God, and he falls mute in Daniel 10. And, and then one who looks like a child of man comes and heals him and tells him to speak. God takes Job, whom he has corrected, in this self-declaration, 
And instead of leaving him mute, what does he call Job to do? He calls him to intercede for his friends. He calls him to cry out. I want to close with this brief quote from N.T. Wright. He simply says this. If you want to know who God is, remember the fear of the Lord, the awe-filled orientation toward God. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama, which has him as the central character. I can't wait for Jesus to set me free from my propensity of me being the central character of my story. I want Christ to be the central character. Welcome to Advent again. And welcome to the peace that passes all understanding. Pray with me.